The main point, if you could summarize the book of Haggai in one sentence, it would be this, God calls us to consider our ways, that is, to give careful thought to whether we put our priority on the worship and service of God and investing and working for his future glory. Summary of the book. So we've been talking about the minor prophets in terms of a mini theater, as if we were to act out a play, and that play shows us something about God, his holiness, his sovereignty, and so on. So we're in our, our tenth minor prophet play, our presentation in, in the God theater, and it's a story about God. What is it that it shows us about God? Uh, Haggai is preaching after the return from Babylonian captivity. So this is different now from all the other minor prophets that we've studied together. We're turning a page to a whole new time. And as in all the 12 minor prophets, we will see again here our theme, Judgment Unto Restoration. Where do we see that? Well, the judgment of the 70 years of captivity is now over, and the task is literally restoration, to restore the city and especially to restore or rebuild the destroyed temple. So upon their arrival home, what we'll find is that the uh, people of God had started to restore the temple, but then they stopped. And they made no progress for somewhere from 15 to 17 years after that. So God sent Haggai to get the people to consider their ways. Chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7 literally has that quote, consider your ways. And then in uh, chapter 2, verses 15 and 18, you see a similar command to consider, to examine their own priorities. If they're not rebuilding the temple of God, do they have proper priorities? Were they being faithful to God's covenant after God had been faithful to them? After the 70 years, just as he had prophesied, he brought them home. So now that they're home, they should be rebuilding rebuilding the temple. The same holy God who insisted on destroying the temple for, for their sins now insists on allegiance to him by restoring his temple, his worship, and his service. All right, so there's an introduction, and across your handout, you'll see keys to understanding the book of Haggai. We'll spend some time on that today. Uh, Outline of Haggai, uh, further down on your handout, uh, pretty simple, and it's kind of a brief book, so we'll actually spend briefer time on the text itself and and the the outline, because it's so important to get the context that we'll spend the bulk of our time on the context. And then lastly, on your page, New Testament images and motifs, the things that we study today could all be expounded on further. I'll just take one that is not actually on your handout, the, the ring, the, the signet ring that's mentioned in the last verse of Haggai. I'll roll that example out a little further. The rest of these are just listed for your further study later. All right, so we're ready to start. So I want to start by saying that this uh, phrase, the Lord of hosts, um, often appears in the Old Testament. Um, about 200 times, actually, it appears, the Lord of hosts. And you may have heard that um, it's referring to him being the God over all the armies of heaven, the host of heaven, the armies of heaven, the Lord of the armies, as it were. It means that he's powerful. So Haggai, in only 38 verses, mentions the Lord more than 20 times, usually in the phrase, the Lord of hosts, or the word of the Lord came to, and Because he emphasizes that so much, 20 times in just 38 verses, it shows us a theme. So I wanted to start with that. I think that what it shows us clearly is the theme is that the authority for the book of Haggai does not come from this man Haggai. The authority for the book of Haggai comes from the Lord, the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. Uh, That's clear in the other books. It's clear in other prophets. But I think in terms of density... (laughs) 
38 verses, 20 times, he has the record for listing the most number of times per verse, per word, per capita uh, than other prophets themselves. So he's dominant with the idea of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is a message of the Lord. All the prophets are, like I say, but it's especially notable in Haggai. Which leads us to commenting about the man Haggai. Surprise, surprise, class, we know very little about the man Haggai. Isn't that a theme of our minor prophets? We don't know much about each of the minor prophets because they all share this mindset with Haggai. It's not about me. It's not about Haggai. It's about the Lord God. So not surprising that we hear more about the Lord God and less about the prophet. But to the extent we learn some, I'll present that now. Who is, who is Haggai? Well, we learn from the book itself that he was one of the last three prophets of the Old Testament period. The prophets known as the prophets of the Restoration. So it's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we'll just cover Haggai today, one lesson, and then the next three weeks to cover Zechariah because it's much, much longer. And on our last study will be Haggai, the prophets of the Restoration. What that means is the former glory was gone. Jerusalem and its temple was glorious. It was Solomon's temple. It was gone. So glory was gone. The former kingdom was gone. Strong kings like David no longer were around. Just rally the troops and go conquer a nation. They didn't have that. Um, glory was gone. It's the restorations. Uh, we need to rebuild is the theme and context. Um, the people had been slaves, as it were, for 70 years. At least we could say that they were uh, living in a foreign land and dominated by those people. They were able to build their own houses. They don't live like slaves like we think American slaves in American history. But some of them would have been slaves, literally, and some of them would have been in their own homes and in a job, as it were, but still they couldn't leave. They couldn't go home, so they were stuck there in that sense. But the, the greatest generation, as we like to call it, all the greatest generations were gone. It was just us, you know, just us struggling people off in Babylon. And um, we need restoration. They're the prophets of the restoration. What do you say to people who are powerfully discouraged? I mean, I, I once made a trip to the land of Turkey. Long story, but I, I noticed a bridge that had not been built by these local folks. These local folks had a donkey or a cart or a basket on their head carrying vegetables for the day. They were not able to build this incredible engineering feat of this bridge. It's obvious that the bridge was built hundreds of years earlier, probably by the Romans in the Roman Empire. And here are these people kind of living under the shadow of the Roman Empire centuries later. It's like that's the sense of the prophets of the Restoration. They're speaking to people who are discouraged long after the mighty King David is gone, long after the big-name people and the glorious temple in Jerusalem. They're just kind of almost tattered, as it were, right? Jerusalem, as they come home to it, is left in ruins. It's a rubble place. Uh, restoration work to do stares them in the face. Uh, we can draw from five Bible books to understand these times, and, and we'll do that today. Haggai, Zechariah, which I'll reserve more for next three weeks, and Malachi, as well as Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll draw some, uh, from, some from today, those five books. So Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying during the same time. So whatever we say today will be helpful for the next three weeks as well, which is why I felt free to take more time on this. 
it will help you understand Zechariah's ministry because the city and the surrounding area is going on the same, same thing. Malachi's different. So four weeks from now, Lord willing, we get to Malachi. He's 100 years later. So that's a whole different setup. But for, in terms of today, Haggai, and next three weeks, Zechariah, everything we say today will fit. So timestamp. So if you're following the handout, I'm now up to timestamp of Haggai. We learn from Haggai 1.1. I'll read chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, or Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest. So another thing that's interesting about the book of Haggai is it's not written to all the people of Judah. It's not written to all the people of Israel. It's not written to all the people of Jerusalem. It seems to be the addressee, or the people to whom it's uh, addressed, is these two men. I just read their names, Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest. Zerubbabel, the governor of that area, which I'll explain that later. And secondly, Joshua the high priest. So the audience is two people. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because obviously other people are reading it and, and we all... It's kind of like uh, New Testament books. If Paul's writing to Timothy, it's Paul to Timothy, but everybody else gets to read it as well. It's just understanding who the audience is for the book. So the first eight words of Haggai 1.1 tells us the timestamp very conveniently, right? We don't always get the timestamp from the Minor Prophet, but here we do. The first eight words, in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month. Very specifically, we're given the timestamp. So as a result, we know clearly that Haggai was preaching in Jerusalem after the return from exile from Babylon, at the time of the rebuilding of the temple, and the year, the way we talk about timestamps, is 520 B.C., 520 B.C., about the same time as uh, Zechariah, as I mentioned. Next on your handout, I'm moving on to known on a first-name basis. What I mean by this is, remember how our previous prophet, Zephaniah, last time, was introduced by a genealogy that went back four generations? It's like telling who his father is, his grandfather is, and his great-grandfather is. Not the case with Haggai. We are not even given the name of Haggai's father, which would essentially be his last name, right? Johnson is John's son, the, kind of the way that developed. So we do not even know his, his last name. So the way I put it is, he's on a first-name basis. We only know his first name. Um, Haggai is simply identified in verse 1 as Haggai the prophet. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> Haggai the prophet doesn't tell you a lot. It, it suggests, though, that his audience knew him, that he would not need to be introduced to Zerubbabel. He wouldn't be, need to be introduced to Joshua. He wouldn't be need, need to be introduced to others in the um, area, those who had come back from exile and were in the area and working on rebuilding the temple. He wouldn't need to be introduced to them. It's Haggai the prophet. I mean, why go on and on when you know who it is? Um, he's well known to his audience and to those living during his lifetime in Jerusalem. So that's known on a first-name basis. Now I'm moving on on your handout to audience of Haggai. So in our study of the Minor Prophets so far, we had something different, so I'm changing gears here today. I'm trying to get you where we are in the audience. We become accustomed to the people hearing the prophets being stiff-necked, closed-eared, closed-hearted, right? They don't listen. 
The prophet proclaims faithfully, but the people don't repent, the people don't listen, the people don't turn, right? Not here in Haggai. He kind of gets the blue ribbon for the most results to his preaching. (laughs) His audience was different. What was different about them? What is it that we need to understand about the audience? The reason I'm taking time now is I'm afraid if we just go right into the text, you'll get a negative impression of the audience. It's maybe not warranted. The negative impression would be that they're so concerned about their houses that they're not concerned about the house of God, the temple of God. And that's not quite true. So let me unpack this a little bit to to show you. These are the people who were the remnant. You know, remnant, it's the Bible's word for the subset of people who are left who are faithful to God and that God has preserved them, they survived exile. Not all of them would have been more than 70 years old and were originally went to exile and then came back home. Some would have been born there. But still, they survived exile. They're of the larger clan, the larger nation who had gone into exile and came back home. They represent the people of God. They represent the same people. They're literally descended from the same Jewish people. So they are the survivors of exile for the nation of Judah or Israel. And they're the ones coming home. There's some that didn't come home. So that's, I think, the significant part to note about the audience. To whom is Haggai writing? He's writing not to the exiles who are still off in Babylon. He's writing to the exiles who have bothered to come home. They made their way home and they're back in Jerusalem. So there's a sense in which his audience isn't perfect. I'm not trying to over-dramatize their sanctification. They're not perfect. However, they were the right people. They're the remnant. They're the people of God. They're in the right place. They came to where they should be. Where should you be on earth when you have permission to come back home? Come back home, especially in those days. As I'll labor to show you, the importance of geography and place was very significant for the kingdom of God. They're not perfect, but they're wanting to do the right work. They're wanting to rebuild the temple, and they started by rebuilding the temple, as I'll show you. They were also doing it for the right reasons. They're not trying to say, we're stronger than Babylon, we're going to show you, we're going to rebuild everything, we're going to rebuild an army, we're going to come and attack you. None of that. They just want to worship God. They want to be home and plow their fields and grow some vegetables and grow some animals and feed their families and worship God and live for God in this world. That's what they want. So it's the right people, the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. Not perfect, but these are, these are, are good people. It's the remnant. It's the audience is different from what we're used to in the Minor Prophets. Okay? It's the zeal for God's house that made them make the long journey from Babylon back home to Jerusalem. So we're studying the um, call to God to this godly remnant. Now, they've messed up the last 15 years. They stopped building. So God's addressing them. He raises up Haggai to address them. He raises up Zechariah to address them. So yeah, they need to be corrected. They're not perfect. But he's telling them, God is telling them, look ahead down to the future. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be the temple, and you will worship through him. But for now, get that temple up and running. Put that altar out there and put lambs on it because you're sinners and I'm a holy God. You need to worship me in this way, right? So Jerusalem's the right place. Later, Jesus would say in Jerusalem that worshipers will not worship on this mountain, or in Jerusalem, but rather worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, John 4, 21 and 23. And later, worshipers will worship anywhere. We might even worship in this room in half an hour, right? 
around the world, the kingdom of God and churches of God and places of worship are raised up later. But in the days of Haggai, which is what we're studying, we need to understand, right after the captivity, when they had permission to come home, the only right place to worship God would be on that temple mount with that altar set back up in the city of Jerusalem. That's it. Don't make other high places. Don't say other places are places to worship the holy God. When God commands in this place, in this way, I'll be worshipped. Now later, you know the story. Jesus would be crucified. He's the Lamb of God. He's crucified at Jerusalem. He rises again in order that we can worship God from any geographic location. But in those days, remember, the sole geographic location to worship God was there. In the future... The bloody sacrifice would be Jesus giving us permanent access to God in heaven. But until then, they would need the blood of lambs and goats. They were needed in order for sinners to approach the holy God in worship. So God placed special value on Jerusalem and the bloody sacrifices that needed to be made there. And he punished the people or disciplined, chastised the people in exile. But now, the exile is over in that sense. He's bringing his people back after the time of chastisement is completed. He's being faithful to his promise. And these people who are listening to Haggai, the audience of Haggai, were their people who had a heart for God. They understood some of these things. They wanted to come back home. They wanted to be in the place of God's blessing. When the call came to return home, they left Babylon as soon as possible. And remember, they were leaving houses. They were leaving homes. They were leaving extended family. They were leaving some who did not leave Babylon to come home. So I just want you to understand the audience. That's why I took the time to say all these things. This audience wanted to do the right work to rebuild the temple, and they come back to a gigantic mess. How could we even begin to understand when they arrived in Jerusalem, this is not some hallmark movie of homecoming, glorious music playing, and they all was happily ever after singing songs, and the credits start showing at the end of the movie. It is so not like that. There are so many things they needed to do. They needed homes for their families. They needed food from their fields, and the fields were a mess. They needed to establish schools for their children, workshops for making tools, stores for buying and selling. They had to set up an entire society. Um, the first thing they did when they arrived home was what? This tells us about our audience. What's the first thing they did? <clears throat> it's uh, on your handout there. Ezra chapter 2, verses uh, 68 and 69. Listen to this. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Ezra 2, 68-69. So let me try to translate that amount. The amount, the weight of it, is 1,100 pounds. Of gold, So we, we measure gold in ounces, not pounds, right? So if you do the math, it's 13,200 troy ounces. This week, I checked this week, an ounce of gold, if I did it correctly, it's worth $2,007. So multiply 13,200 troy ounces times $2,007, and I needed a calculator for this. It was $26 million. That's the first thing they did when they came. I want you to understand the audience. These are the people who the first thing they did when they got back to Jerusalem is took up an offering. And out of 50,000 people, 
they somehow amassed what we would consider to be $26 million. That's just the gold. Then there's silver, then there's priest garments, and so on. So this money is used to pay for what? To pay for woodworkers, guys who chop down trees, to go over to Lebanon where the cedar trees are and chop down trees so, so that we can start to do the rebuilding of this temple. We need, we need cedar wood. It's also um, used to pay for stone workers, to go wherever you go to find stones to lay into the temple, to rebuild the temple with wood and stones, and to transport the cedar logs from Lebanon over here, and the stone workers to buy and transport and get things started. So by the second month of the second year that they were back, they had made progress. They cleared the rubble of the, the foundation of the temple, they set up the altar so that sacrifices for worship could start. And they got as far as laying the foundation for the great temple. So this was a group of people who clearly wanted to serve God, to worship God, to put God's work above their own interests. They were doing all this work and making all these generous donations for the right reasons. They had faced trials and difficulties over in captivity and in the travel across the territories to get back home. They came to a broken down city. They came to fields that they... Uh, had owned that were destroyed, uh, they came to a temple that was destroyed. And their devotion to God compelled them with a strong desire to rebuild. There's nothing for them here except for God declared here is holy land and he will put his name there and he had blessed them and we promised to bless them there. So the right people, right place, right work, right reasons. However, now 15 or 16 years had gone by and they were caught up now in caring for the families, caring for the homes, caring for their livelihood, kind of rebuilding life in Jerusalem. Um, that's, you know, freeze frame. That's a picture of people in any generation, right? That could be us. That could be people you know. Christians across your family were caught up in caring for our families and caring for our homes and caring for our livelihood and doing things that are fun, doing things that are necessary. And, and life is full, right? It's very full. So... Who are we to look down our nose at them, right? These are people who, they're about to be chastised by God through Haggai, get going on the, the priorities and the worship of God, but we can understand because it's kind of like us, right? That do we build our whole lives around the worship of God and the service of God? We ought to, we kind of know that. But these are people who were zealous for God. They really were. They had a job. They had a spouse. They had children, maybe grandchildren. Somehow let the service of God slide, let the work of God's kingdom slide. I mean, the altar was set up, so they were worshiping, but they just didn't complete the temple, you know? Um, the word of God through Haggai comes to such people. And what is it that we're doing to build God's kingdom? What is it that we would say is the condition of our home, our career, our family, our community? Do we have our priorities in place fully, 100%, um, to prioritize God and his worship have we fully wrestled with how God has set apart in Jesus Christ to be a child of God. So when God says through Haggai, consider your ways, we can take that home. We can, we can say to ourselves, consider your ways in chapter 1.5 and chapter 1.7 and again in chapter 2.15 and 2.18. So God calls us to put the creator before the creation. He calls us to have no other gods before him, you know, from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 verse 3. He calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Deuteronomy 6.5. So that's enough about the audience. 
Moving on, on your handout you see a short book. Short book. Both Haggai and Zechariah were prophets preaching at the same time in Jerusalem after the prisoners of war came home from Babylon to rebuild the city and the temple. Zechariah gets far more attention. If you look at the books that are available for Haggai and the books that are available for Zechariah, if you look at the sermons that are preached in Haggai and the sermons that are preached in Zechariah, the articles that are written and so on, all the attention goes to Zechariah. And poor little Haggai doesn't get much attention. And we're going to do the same thing. <laughs> we're going to have only one week on Haggai and three weeks on Zechariah. But it's because of the length. We're going to follow the same pattern that God follows in how much material is provided. There's two chapters, 38 verses of Haggai, and there's 14 chapters of Zechariah. So I think we're supposed to give more attention to Zechariah. Um, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets, or one of the longest, but Haggai, with two chapters, is among the shortest books of the Bible. Uh, of the Old Testament. Next, the name Haggai, it comes from the Hebrew word that means fest or festival. I think in around Milwaukee we should say fest, right? Summer fest, uh, Greek fest, Italian fest. We should say his name means fest. Uh, but around the world, probably the word festival. And what that means is, the significance of that is, his parents would choose a name for him that is tied to religious festivals. So it means that they were religious. It means that they wanted to mark the fact that their uh, child reminds them of God or they want to point to God. And it also could be, and I think it's kind of likely, that he was born on a festival, one of the festivals in the liturgical calendar. And so it's natural that his name would be, you know, festival. If he's born on that festival, much like if a child, let's say a girl is born on Christmas Day, would you be surprised or judgmental if the family chose the name Joy or Holly or Carol or Gloria or Noel? It would be quite appropriate because her birthday is on Christmas every year. So, right? Haggai Festival. Get the idea. That's all we know. Moving on to exiles. Now, the question is to exiles. After 70 years, to go home or not to go home? And it's a little complicated. So I think I put on your handout, Jeremiah, you see that? Um, Jeremiah 29, 5 through, through 7. All right, so let's first look at the Ezra verse, and then the Jeremiah passage isn't significant. Imagine your life is like the life of the Jewish people. You're in a foreign nation. You're being held in captivity in this 70-year window in Babylon. Okay? Somehow try to imagine that. Suddenly, you're being released to go home. And so Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 tells us how this happened. Ezra 1, 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. End quote. So, the king who overtook all of Babylon and was a ruler over a giant area now kind of inherited this whole Jerusalem problem. <laughs> he inherited a problem among a lot of different places. And so his idea was freedom of religion. Wherever you're living in my giant kingdom, says King Darius, Emperor Darius, wherever you're living, go ahead with your religion. If you want to build a temple, if you want to build a shrine, if you want to build a sanctuary, whatever it is that you do between you and your beliefs, do it. And so he's saying to the people of Jerusalem, 
Your belief says you have to be in a certain geographic location? Well, then go on over there. Your belief says you got to build a temple? Well, then build your temple. I'm giving everybody freedom to go and be who you're supposed to be. Does that make sense? We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week with Zechariah, but get the idea. Now, the Jewish exiles in Babylon had followed the advice of Jeremiah previously. Listen to this. Significant verses, Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. God says to the people in exile through Jeremiah, build houses. This is in Jerusalem. And live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And jump to verse 7, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of Babylon, he's telling his people. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, on behalf of Babylon. Pray for Babylon. For, for Babylon's welfare, in Babylon's welfare, you find your welfare. Whoa. Right, do you remember that? We studied through Jeremiah, you may or may not recall. So Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7, still holds power for the people, right? There's, they built a whole life there. They had homes and gardens and produce and soccer practice and everything else. Life was for them in Babylon. Now, they knew that it was to be 70 years and then God will bring them back. But did they necessarily schedule their whole lives on that marker? Eh, right? Most of those who had been carried into exile had died. Those who were born there and carried on each family and lived in those houses, only knew Babylon as their home. Some, we believe, did live through the whole time. So they would have seen, and you'll see that, I'll prove that in a moment. Some would have lived through the entire window of time, but most have died, and so most were born there and had never seen Jerusalem. All they knew was Babylon. You get the idea? They never saw the temple, the former temple. How could they be of significant assistance to rebuild a temple that they had never seen? You see how the figuring starts going? Well, I don't know. We're, we're available to go back, but should we really go back? Because Jeremiah said build houses here. And now, you know, King Darius, I mean, who's that? I mean, he says go back home. Like, should we go back home? And so rather than a full, happy, massive return home, every single Jewish person says, yay, we're finally free from exile. Go back home, rebuild the temple, glory day. No, most stayed in Babylon. All that you had returning home was a remnant, a small portion of those in Babylon. Most Jewish exiles, the people of God, chose to keep their lives, their homes, their comforts, their financial security that they had built up, whatever they could, during exile. The number of those who returned from, Jerusalem, from Babylon to Jerusalem was about 50,000. How do I know this? From the Bible, Ezra chapter 2, verses 64 and 65 reads, The whole assembly together was 42,360 people, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. So if you count the people plus their servants, it was about 50,000, a little bit less. Next on your handout is returning exiles, not a glorious homecoming scene. When those 50,000 people left their homes in Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, it was not some glorious homecoming. The returning people faced a number of problems. Problem number one, house damage and many fallow fields. The fields had not all been planted and kept up. Some of them had been. Their homes were destroyed. Their land had no crops. 
Or problem number two, maybe their land did have crops, but whose land is it? So land squabbles. Remember, some of the poorest Jewish people had been left in the land over those seven decades and basically had taken over the care of the property. And I'll read this to you from Jeremiah 52, 15 to 16. I think that's listed on your handout. Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest people and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Jeremiah 52, 15 to 16. Okay, so you know some people were still there, the poorest of people, doing their best to grow grapes for wine to keep some fields going so they could feed the Babylonian soldiers. Now here come the previous owners of the land coming home from Babylon, 70 years out. Oh, by the way, this is our land. Right. It's my land. No, 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 seriously, it's my land. Let me, let me pull out the paperwork. Yeah, I don't care about your paperwork. A lot has happened. <laughs> I've been on this land for going on the third generation here. Don't show me your paperwork, right? You can imagine the squabbles. It's complex. It becomes a real legal issue. And so now they have to set up courts. They have to set up judges. They have to set up lawyers. I mean, how do you even do this, right? The returnees have rights to the land, but those who had remained in the land had rights to the land. You could see a legal case for either one. Tensions would develop. Rather than this harmonious working together to rebuild the temple, isn't this great that we're post-exile? These tensions between former slaves in foreign lands who were technically property owners and former poor who then had become de facto property owners were tensions of Jewish people with Jewish people. The tensions were still present 100 years later after waves of more Jewish exiles returned home. We read about an outcry a century later about land and slavery and the response from Nehemiah. So let me read Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So this is the complaint. It's already various voices and complex. And here's Nehemiah's response. You ready? Nehemiah chapter 5, now starting with verse 6. He responded to the outcry. Nehemiah. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. In other words, he went home and thought about it. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, this is still Nehemiah, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these. 
and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So God blessed Nehemiah's leadership, and they resolved it, right? But it's 100 years later. That's a lot of tension for a lot of time. And Nehemiah ends, um, verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nice ending, but it's 100 years of turmoil to get there. I want you to understand it. All right. Problem number three, opposition to rebuilding the city and temple. There was external opposition from the neighbors, and they stalled the work. And B, there was internal opposition, criticism from their own Jewish people. The external opposition from uh, surrounding groups was that the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the Lord's temple was opposed by the adversaries. In Ezra chapter 4, you have verses 1 to 5 listed there. I'll just read one line. Um, the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, and they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, and so on. And then skip to verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. In other words, they're saying, wait, if you're going to build this temple and get the almighty God of the universe all excited about you guys, you're going to blow us out. So we're not going to allow it. Just, we're going to stop this and we're going to snuff it out here. Do you get the idea? Then uh, Ezra 5, 1 through 5, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned, that they prophesied to the Jews. And then there's this letter from Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates, and they um, interchange with the people. But we read this incredible line, Ezra 5, 5, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. So, okay, that... It's a complicated process. You can read more about it. Ezra 5, 1 to 5, and then Ezra 2, uh, 1 through 11, you can read, but I've got to press forward to, uh, to finish off here. So then let's move to the internal opposition. Here, initial efforts had begun to construct a temple, but they were met with discouraging remarks. And if it's people outside, you can sort of take it, but your own people, what, have, what was it? Ezra 3, 12, listen to this. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men, catch that? Old men who had seen the first house, in other words, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. People who are celebrating saying, we got the temple foundation done. The old men are shouting with tears saying, it's nothing like the temple that I remember, right? Verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Some were crying out for joy. Some were crying out for grief. What a scene. See that? Ezra um, 3. 12 and 13. See how there's internal opposition? Haggai 2.3. Haggai said, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Haggai understood that. He says, I know you old men are looking at it and saying, that's not a knife. This is a knife. That's not a temple. This is a temple. What I remember, that's not a temple. If we're going to do this, do it right. <laughs> I get it. Haggai understood his audience. And we'll see that in um, Zechariah next week as well. So, do you rebuild the temple first or later? Next on your handout. The returning exiles lacked God's priority to rebuild the temple, 
But with all these problems and issues, it's no surprise, right? You have some compassion for them. You understand the scene, okay? Um, Timestamps. So there's many timestamps in Haggai showing the rising hope of the restoration of Davidic rule because of the turmoil the oppressing nation motivated the people to rebuild the temple. The timestamps, I think I listed them. Haggai 1, 1, 2, 1, 2, 10, and 2.20, an additional one in chapter 1.15. The dates are all within a four-month period. So why are we given so many timestamps? This happened, and two months later this happened, and then a month later this happened. Because um, there were uprisings coming, and they were wondering, is this the time that God's going to restore a king for the Jewish people on the throne of David? So they're starting to track time, and they're saying, are we going to be a threat to Darius, or are we going to have an actual king? And of course, Haggai says, yeah, you'll have a king, but very different than the way you think. Look way down. Look in the horizon. You're going to have a king, and he'll be a son of David, and he'll be on David's throne, but everything will be different. He's building a kingdom that you can barely imagine right now. So he's pointing them to the spiritual reality of Jesus coming and so on. So death of Haggai, we don't know when or how he died. Um, if chapter 2, verse 3, is to take into mean that Haggai saw the original temple himself before he went to captivity, it's possible then that he was an older man and would have uh, passed away out of old age. But perhaps once the restoration work was going in earnest, his job was over. He was really just supposed to jumpstart them to rebuild, and maybe he just um, died after his task was done. So the structure of the book of Haggai, uh, most of the other minor prophets are sermons. If you notice when you read Haggai, it's different. It consists of a narrator, narrator's report on the sermons and the effect that the sermons had. So he says, Haggai said, build the temple. And the people started building the temple. So that's kind of more the structure of the book. Outline. So I've kind of given you the background that you need. I think you can go through... Um, the outline of the book more thoroughly yourself, but let me just mention each of the oracles. So the first oracle is a summons to labor. It's time to rebuild. They're saying, no, it's not. God is saying through Haggai, yes, it is. And it's amazing, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, the response of the people. They got to work right away. Like within 24 days, we're given the timestamps. Within 24 days, they were working on the temple. So that's pretty good. The second oracle is an encouragement to labor. Okay, so this temple is not as glorious as the previous temple but keep building because God is in it. If God will worship with you here and God is building his kingdom of things beyond this, don't consider the previous glory. Consider the God of glory and the current temple leads to his future plans. So do sinners, third, third, uh, third oracle, instructions and encouragements for the labor, they start to ask, like compared to the book of Leviticus, wait, if we're sinners and we're building the holy temple, do we taint the temple? So they address that question. Do sinners make the temple unholy by them being the builders of it? And the fourth oracle, the safety of God's people during the coming commotions. Will God raise up a Davidic king? And yes, he will. So you see the New Testament images and motifs there. All right, before we close, I wanted to talk about the signet ring at the very end. All right, so God's love for us and God's commitment to us is demonstrated in this last statement of God, the very last verses of Haggai. I'm going to read verses 20 to 23 and make a comment as we close. Verse, uh, 20, chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. 
Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So a signet ring would show security, um, the safety of, of God's people. It was a stone that was set into a ring, like we use a diamond ring that's set into a ring, a stone into a ring. And that stone was engraved with a person's symbol, their personal symbol, unique to them. Like today, we use a signature that's unique to you for important documents. In those days, they would use a stone that had a certain carved icon on it, and you would put a drop of hot wax on your document, and the signet ring would go in there. So you would always have that with you, and you would be able to verify and authenticate documents. God is saying, um, you're like my signet ring. I'm not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere. This is going to be my holy temple, and from here I'm going to build my kingdom. I am going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. So the, the Christian hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, kind of expresses this, how it translates to Christ and to the Christians. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Inscribed in his heart it remains, and marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. So the, the hymn expresses how the people who've already died and their spirits have gone to be with God are secure. We are just as secure. It's just that they're more happy because they're done with their earthly fight of sin, right? Makes us comforted with bewildered joy. The Apostle Peter calls us to think about our time in this world like an exile. First uh, Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to whom are the elect exiles, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope and have an inheritance that will never perish or fade. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and glories to follow. And listen to this, 1 Peter 1.17 if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold or some signet ring stone, right? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. So the signet ring points to the cross. It's the security of God's people that God stands behind his promises. If he's going to send him in exile and bring him home, if he's going to build his temple, if he's going to fulfill his covenant, if he's going to bless his people, he's going to forgive us and give us a heavenly home, it's fulfilled whether it's building of that temple or that death and resurrection. God says, consider your ways. Put a priority on worshiping him, serving him, and investing in his kingdom, and working towards his future glory. That's it. Boy, that guy.